Welcome to the Law School Admissions Simplified Podcast, where we cut through the nonsense to talk about all things LSAT, law school admissions, and life-related. I'm Ben, and I do LSAT prep and law school admissions full-time. I've been doing this since 2021. I started in around May, so, you know, you see a lot having gone through it. Uh, if you like what we talk about here, you can find me on Instagram, where I post about the LSAT and admissions and, you know, various other fun things, and that's at LSA Simplified. Um... You can also find my website, lsasimplified.com, which has everything I'm up to. I've written an LSAT book that you can find on Amazon titled LSA Simplified LSAT Primer. And I host free LSAT sessions once a month that you can attend if you so wish, as well as paid monthly courses, tutoring, and on-demand options for LSAT preppers. Alrighty, so today we're going to go through um, a pretty deep student loan breakdown, kind of talking about what do student loans for law school look like, why they're so atrocious, and how you can avoid them. I was blown away by how terrible they are when I sat down with the numbers and actually crunched them. I think we all know that loans suck and that you want to avoid them, but I was astonished at just how atrocious they ended up being. It's absurd, and we'll get into that. We'll also talk about listener questions, um, not actual listener questions because this is episode one, so you know that's kind of a paradox, but I sent things out to my newsletter, which has a few people on it as well as on Instagram. And some of you submitted your questions. So that's awesome. I also got a personal statement submitted for law school. So we'll break that down if we have time. Alrighty. Well, let's dive in to the first topic, which is student loans and how they affect law school. So the thing about law school is that it's really expensive, which I'm sure you all know. And law school tuitions can vary. They can be as low as like $30,000 for in-state schools to as high as like 70,000-ish, but that's just tuition. They often will then hit you with fees, which can be another maybe 2,000 or 1,000, but some schools, they can push up to like five grand, which is kind of ridiculous if you ask me, because shouldn't you just include that in the tuition? But regardless, it's something you have to pay if you attend, so you have to factor it into your you know life. Additionally, you have to pay for your life while you're in law school. So not only are you paying the tuition, but like you have to pay rent, you have to eat, presumably you're not going to want to be a hermit for three years. So like maybe you, I mean, even if you're cheap and you just go out to like a movie on the weekends or dinner once a week, you're still accruing those expenses. And unless you have like money really stockpiled, you're probably taking out debt. So, you know, that's also there. Um, so yeah, what I'm going to assume for the purpose of my calculations is $50,000 in tuition. Unfortunately, that's pretty average for most schools without scholarship. So, you know, we'll take that. Then we'll throw in another 20K for living expenses, which I can just hear those of you in like New York or LA laughing at me right now because it's so absurd that you could live off 20,000 per year. But we'll assume you're going to like Oklahoma State School of Law and it's relatively affordable to get by for a year. So, okay, that's up to 70K. And that's over the course of three years because law school is not one year. You're doing it for three years. So we're going to round down and call it $200,000 a year just to make the math easy. But we've already gotten to $200,000 a year. Now, the nasty little thing about law school loans is that they do not start accruing interest when you graduate, like many undergrad loans do, but rather they start accruing interest on day one. So on day one, that 70,000 or whatever you take out for your first year, it's going to be accruing interest. And the interest rate is 7%. Now, for those of you that understand interest rates, you understand how egregious that is and how that's just like death and you're never going to get out of that. But for those of you that don't understand that, we'll break it down in more, you know, real I guess, world ideas that you can understand. Because for me, you hear 200,000, you hear 7%, you're like, yeah, that's a ton of money. Like, that's absurd. I'm never going to pay that off. But like, what does this functionally mean for me? Well, let's break it down. 
so you graduate, let's say you have $200,000 in debt. And, you know, if you get hired at Big Law, which those are the people largely graduating out of the top schools, think the Harvards, the Yales. And there are people that from most schools that go to Big Law, but like, let's say you're at Oklahoma State University, just because I'm trying to make up a law school that I don't think exists. You probably have to be like the valedictorian to really have a consideration at Big Law. At minimum, you got to be like in the top 5% of your class. So unless you're going to these very kind of elite schools, your opportunities to make those big starting salaries in the 200Ks, not a thing. Most people are going to be making five figures graduating from law school. So, okay, you graduated, you have $200,000 in debt. Let's say you're the average law grad, you're working at the like DA's office, you're making 70K a year or something. And don't like quote me on the numbers, I'm just guesstimating for that. But for the debt, I'm not guesstimating. These are real numbers. So you have 200,000 a year. So just to service your interest, not even to pay the loan down, you would have to pay $14,000 per year, which is something like, what is that? 20% of your pre-tax salary. So 20% of the money you're making before taxes is going straight to the government or whoever gave you the loans just to stay above water. That's not even reducing the amount of debt you have. That's just so you don't default. If you want to pay it down, you have another 200K you have to dig out. So just to do that, it's $1,200 a month, which the way I put this is $233 coffees. You can go to Starbucks 200 sometimes just to pay your student loan interest, not even your debt, just your interest. So that's absurd. So hopefully it's sinking in that this law school debt is a very real, very scary monster, and you want to do your best to avoid it. So there's a few ways you can avoid it. One is like, you know, minimize your expenses while you're in law school, live cheap, eat ramen, all that stuff. I think that's a lot harder than the way I'll recommend. Although it doesn't hurt. Like, yeah, you could skip your Starbucks coffee, but we just broke it down. Your Starbucks coffee is not making the difference in these uh, student loan payments. You're like, I mean, one coffee or even one a day is not even one eighth of what we just calculated. So with that in mind, how do you reduce it? And the basic gist of this is the LSAT or, I mean, well, it's your GPA plus your LSAT, but for most of you, functionally, what you can control is your LSAT. So what you're going to want to do is get a high LSAT. Now, why do law schools give scholarship to LSATs? And put simply, it's because they have to with how the system is set up. Law schools are not these altruistic, kind institutions that want to give you money for your high numbers. They do it because they have to. And the reason they have to is because of the ranking system. In the rankings, um, the law schools, they really care about them. So there's this institution, which is US News, and it ranks the law schools, and they really care. And the reason they care is because the, those rankings influence how much money they get. If they're high in the rankings, they get more applicants, more people are willing to pay full price, and they generate more revenue for their school. This can literally be the difference between a dean staying in their position or getting fired, or the people under them staying in their positions or getting fired. So they really want to bring in the highest numbers possible. The reason the high numbers matter is because that's part of the ranking calculation. And it's really the only thing they can control are their incoming LSAT and incoming GPAs. So your GPA matters as well. It's just that, you know, for most of you, that's functionally out of the equation. Additionally, a lot of the other parts of the rankings are outcome related. Like, you know, what kind of jobs do people get? Um, how well do they do that sort of stuff? And that's correlated to the LSAT, despite what goofballs on the internet say. Um, not saying the LSAT's perfect. When people say the LSAT doesn't predict law school success, it's like they've literally done studies. It literally does. Is it perfect? No, but like it does have some predictive mechanism. Like if you send someone with a 130 into law school, it's going to be bad news. They're, they're going to get killed. There's just no way around it. And yeah, people don't like to hear that, but that's reality. So sorry. 
So yeah, basically, if you get good LSAT numbers, schools will give you money. Now, why do they give you money? We've established that they want the high numbers, but why does that mean they have to give you scholarship? And basically, it's because let's say I have a 170 and a 3.9. So I'm like a pretty good applicant and I'm applying to, I don't know, let's say like my local school, Colorado, because I'm from Colorado, fun fact. Now, I'm overqualified for Colorado. They don't get a lot of 170, 3.9s that really want to attend Colorado as their dream school. Maybe my dream school is like Northwestern or Georgetown or some more highly ranked school. Colorado knows that. They're not delusional about where they stand. They understand that I'm better than them in like a dating sort of, I guess, view. And so because of that, they're going to give me money. They're like, wait a sec. If we don't give Ben incentive to come to Colorado, he ain't coming. And because of that, they're like, well, yeah, you can go to Georgetown and pay a full price, or you can come here and we'll, you know, not charge you tuition. So the way they do that is they'll just give you a scholarship upon application. Law school is not something where you write a bunch of essays for a bunch of nonprofits to try to get some scholarship, but rather you just want to, you know, have good numbers. And then when you apply, you'll get an offer. This does vary year by year. Some years are more generous. Some are less. Some schools really play this game and give out a ton of scholarship. Uh, think Wash U in St. Louis. Um, Michigan used to give a ton of scholarship for a while. There were 1,013 people at the school and only 1,011 of, sorry, only two of them were not on scholarships. So they were giving scholarships to 1,011 of the people that attend and two poor suckers were paying full tuition. I, I would feel like such a sucker if I were one of those two folks, but I digress. So either way, the point is there's a ton of money out there and those scholarships come in a lot of forms. I mean, they can come in like a 10K discount, which like 10K off of 50K, is that really making a big difference? Like it's nice, I guess, but it's not substantial or they can be full rides. So that's what I tend to look for because, you know, avoiding debt is good. You don't have to get a scholarship necessarily to go to law school, but you want to go in eyes wide open. Like paying full price for Harvard or Yale, that's one thing. Paying full price for like Oklahoma State, probably a bad call. I would bet that's going to end poorly if I had to look at someone's financial future. I mean, we just broke down the numbers. We, we know that person is going to graduate. They're probably not going to be making crazy amounts of money, maybe 70K, 80K starting, who, who knows. And then they have this $1,200 interest payment a month. I mean, that, that's got to be like a four bedroom in Oklahoma. I kid, I kid. But the point is, you know, it's very real, very scary, but it's very avoidable. You can avoid it with a high LSAT score. And a high LSAT score is a lot more attainable than people tend to think. With proper prep in a few months, you'll get there. Like, you might not get to 175 because a lot of people don't get there, but you'll at least get to the high 150s at the bare minimum if you study properly or into the 160s. Most people will end up in the 160s if they study well. And then a decent chunk of people will also get to the 170s. That tends to get a little bit more into the natural aptitude. Um, but yeah, if someone's like in the 140s, 130s, they just haven't studied properly. And it's not always a reflection on them and like a lack of work ethic. Sometimes they just didn't know what they were doing. One of the nasty things about the LSAT is there's a lot of garbage out there with how to study what to study, all that nonsense. And because of that, people often end up spinning their wheels for far too long. So you really want to make sure that the way you're studying is efficient. I have a lot of free resources on how to do that. So you don't need to like pay someone a ton of money. You can't always pay um, someone for tutoring or courses or stuff like that. And it's probably a good investment because, you know, we just broke down the numbers. You spend $500 on LSAT prep to save yourself 200K. I think it's worth it. However, you don't need to. There's a lot of good free resources out there that you can start with to kind of set yourself on your journey. Okay, so that's uh, law school debt. Very real, very scary. If anyone has any follow-ups on that, feel free to shoot me an email. You can always reach me at ben at lsasimplified.com. 
for future, um, you know, future questions or whatnot. Okay. Well, I have some listener questions and by listener questions, like we established, they're not, but we'll still go through them. So first off, someone says, what are the most reliable ways of getting off a school's wait list? I'll caveat this question by first saying that generally you don't want to get in off the wait list. If you're getting in off the wait list, you're probably paying full price. And like we just talked about, that's usually a bad idea. Maybe at the very tippy top, like Harvard and Yale, I would endorse it. <laughs> but if you're applying to like Oklahoma State, probably don't want to be paying full tuition. And if you're getting off the wait list, you're probably paying full tuition. That being said, if that's what you want to go to and you've decided that that's what you're going to do, um, expressing interest. So like sending them an email, if you're still early enough in the year, if you could retake the LSAT and update them with a higher LSAT score, that's the biggest thing. Um, visiting their campus, stuff like that, trying to create a connection with a admissions officer. That being said, like I wouldn't endorse this. Generally getting off wait list is a bad idea because you're paying full price. But if that's what you really desire to do, try to really show genuine interest. And if you really want to go, this is your school and you have some like millionaire uncle that's paying for your tuition. If you tell them you're going to pay full price, they love that. They love money. Um, despite all their stuff about doing justice and changing the world. I'm a cynic. I don't buy it. I think that they are very much so, you know, interested in the dollars and that's what their behavior shows. So yeah, if you signal that you are willing to pay full price, they do take that into account. Okay. Another person asks, if you apply to a law school and get denied, but you retake the LSAT and apply again within the same cycle, is it possible to get accepted or do you have to wait until the next cycle? Okay. Yeah. So you, you apply and get denied. You're, you're done for that cycle. Law schools do not reopen your application. This is why it's always best to wait until you have your LSAT before you apply. People do this very often, but it is a big mistake, which is to apply while they're waiting on their LSAT score or they're registered for a future LSAT and they hope that the law school will hold off on evaluating their application. Some schools do, some schools don't. So you just have to be careful about whether they will or not. And even the schools that say they'll hold off on evaluating your application, sometimes they don't because incompetence, people mess up. So it's generally a very risky bet to apply before you have your numbers in LSAC system. Uh, so yeah, if you already applied and got denied, like game over, you're done at that school. There are 200 some schools, so you could apply to other ones, but like that was a mistake if that was the only school that you really wanted to go to. And another question, how much does applying biding early decision help your chances? If the school sees that you are guaranteed to go there upon acceptance, does that really greatly raise your chances of being accepted? Um, yeah, because they can charge you full price. If they, So the way binding early decision works for a law school is it actually is binding. I'm not super familiar with the undergrad system, but you can kind of weasel your way out of it. If you apply early decision and a school accepts you, you can kind of like go, oh yeah, just kidding. I didn't really want to go in here. It was the negotiation tactic. That don't work in law school. You, they really enforce it. And they have this um, kind of mob mafia technique where if you apply early decision to one school, and then you try to go to a different school, the school you ED to, they'll call up that other school and say, hey, they told us they were coming here. They're not. Don't let them come. And so it's generally a mistake to apply early decision, in my opinion, because it really doesn't give you much of an advantage. But what it does do is it signals that you are willing to pay full price. Because like we talked about, the reason law schools give you money uh, for law school is because when you attend or when you're applying, they know that you have other options. And so to limit those options, they're trying to give you money and say, hey, instead of going to Georgetown, come to Colorado because we're gonna give you money. If they know that you can't go to Georgetown because you applied early decision, why would they ever give you money? It would be stupid for them to. So does it raise your chance of being accepted? Yeah, it does. 
And it also raises your chances of getting absolutely finessed and paying $200,000 for law school. So don't do it. It's a bad idea. Now, there are some exceptions to this. There are some early decision programs where people have um, or the schools have scholarships attached to the early decision. That's fine because at that point, it's like, okay, I think Northwestern has one where if you apply and you get in, you get like a full ride. Like that, that's, that's good with me because it's a full ride to a good school. Like that's all great. However, if it's Oklahoma State and there's no full ride attached to it, bad juju. So yeah, I kind of case by case, but generally a bad idea. Alrighty, the next question is from Naomi. Hi, Ben. Do you know if the online proctor from the LSAT uh, when you're taking your remote will allow you to speak slash read slash think out loud? No, they do not. You are not allowed to read out loud. They will yell at you. Um, she continues, on some questions, I find myself saying my thoughts out loud, but I want to be sure the online proctors don't have an issue with it. I know I obviously wouldn't be able to do so at the testing center. Thank you so much. So yeah, I mean, to say a couple words, are they going to like yell at you? Like, no, probably not. If you're reading out a reading comp passage or a logical reasoning argument, they're going to yell at you and tell you to stop. So it really is case by case. Like small things, sure. Long things, no bueno. Okay. Next one. I'm taking a year off to work and save up for law school while studying to get a high score on the LSAT. Do you have any advice on what steps I should take to be fully prepared? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is get started. If you have a year um, to work and save up, the issue people often, or the mistake people often make is you have to apply pretty early in the cycle for best results. This year has been a weird year where that doesn't really apply. And I think it might be giving people bad impressions of how to do this, but generally you want to be done with the LSAT in the summer, like the year before you want to attend. So say you want to attend in September of 2024, you want to be done with the LSAT by, um, or you would have wanted to have been done by like June of 2023. Now, this year has been different. This is kind of a slow, weird cycle. So it is different. But for the average person, one year, you still want to get done fairly early. So get going on the LSAT now. Um, it's also possible that you, I'm trying to think, like, let's say this person graduates in May. I'm assuming they're um, getting off school. So, okay, they get off in May of 2024. And then they want to attend in 2025. Yeah, I mean, you want to be applying in like September. So from ending school to applying, you have like four months. So that year off doesn't help you as much as you think it would. Most of that year is time that you can't really be studying for the LSAT. So I would get going now. And you can take two years because that's always another option. And then in that case, you have way more time. But if you are really committed to this one year, you should get going ASAP. Um, so yeah, any advice on the steps? I mean, start now and chug away. My general LSAT philosophy, which I guess we haven't gotten too much into on this one, is consistent, steady progress. It's better to do an hour to two a day than to do these like crazy study plans of five, six hours. I find that people can't stick to them. And it's much easier to stick to a reasonable, like, you know, attainable goal that you can actually hit so that you keep moving forward towards your goals. You feel better about yourself and you're more likely to stick with it. It's like a diet. If you try to eat 500 calories a day, you're going to fall off because no one can do that. It's just impossible. However, if you actually do just cut 200 calories under your maintenance, people can stick to that because like, yeah, they're hungry, but they're not like starving. So you can, you know, stick with them. So yeah, I would um, stay consistent, start early and give yourself the time you need to um, study. People really do often underestimate the time they need to study for the LSAT. So if you're hearing this now and you haven't really started studying, I tend to say the average person needs three to six months. So that's an average. People can do it quicker. And on the other end, people can take much longer to get it done. So give yourself six months or more if you still have the time to. It's really necessary. 
And I see this every year where people, they only have three months, they end up studying, they get a very mediocre score. Then they end up paying full price for some garbage law school or not garbage, but like not good. Okay. Yeah, actually garbage. There are garbage law schools. So they end up paying full price for garbage law school. And we just broke down the student loan debt. Those people have legitimately ruined their financial futures. The only way out of it is if they find some way to make three, 400 K a year, which like, are they really going to, if they're going to Oklahoma state law? Probably not. I'm not trying to be like the Debbie Downer, but also like real talk. I think too many people see law school as just this golden ticket to the upper class. And they're like, oh, it doesn't matter how I do the process as long as I get in. No, wrong, very wrong. You can't do that. That will end up with you in financial misery. And yeah, everyone, like people that aren't really in the law school legal world don't understand this because law school is still viewed like medical school. Like, oh, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to make hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. False, not true. Not all lawyers make that much. Like, yes, there are lawyers that make that much, but it's not all of them. And those lawyers don't get hired out of all the schools. And even out of the schools they get hired out of, most of those schools, they're only hiring from the tippy top. So I want to be very careful. If you want to see how school salaries break down, you can go to lawschooltransparency.com. It gives you really good breakdowns on every single school in the country. Generally, my advice would be like, don't pay more than half tuition for anything below the top 20. Even those, I really would not be enthusiastic about someone paying full price for. It just becomes more, you know, excusable. But even then, it becomes a correlation causation thing. And here's why the people like, let's say, let's take a 20th ish school, like Boston university, which yeah, the top chunk of that class is going to have really good outcomes. They're going to get hired. They're going to get good, high paying jobs and they will make money and pay their loans off. Those people are largely there on scholarship anyways, because they had good LSAT, good GPAs. They're the better students. So the better students coming into Boston university are the ones that aren't paying money and are more likely to get the good jobs upon graduation. Whereas the people taking out student loans, probably have lower GPAs, lower LSAT, and are hence less prepared for law school when they get there. And then when they get there, they're probably going to get worse grades and hence get worse jobs. So this whole scholarship system is kind of a take from the poor and give to the rich um, little finagling, but it is what it is. And like being upset about it doesn't really do anything. You just have to understand it. So I've got to talk to myself out of paying to BU because if you're paying for BU, if I had to bet on you, I would bet against you in terms of how well you're going to do there. Are there people that like cross over, like people with great numbers that end up struggling at BU? Sure. And are there people that have poor numbers that end up crushing it? Like, yeah, that also happens. But for the most part, people tend to stay in line with their numbers. And hence, it's a bad idea to be paying for a school like that. Okay, cool, cool. Um, this next one is a question about how to write a GPA addendum and an LSAT addendum, especially with big score increases from anonymous. Uh, yeah, so it... it they're different because basically addendums, for those of you that aren't familiar, are little written pieces or short paragraphs, documents that you submit along with your application explaining something. So in this case, it would be explaining a GPA or an LSAT. Now, what you don't want to do with addendums is have excuses. You don't want to talk about, oh, when I was a freshman, my cat died and grandma got cancer and I had to work 40 hours a week. Actually, working 40 hours a week wouldn't be a bad fact. But for the most part, excuses look like excuses and everyone with a 3.2 is writing an addendum on why they have a 3.2, what you really want to do is have good facts that show that you're more than that 3.2. So the best way to write a GP addendum is say, like when I applied or when I started law, geez, my overall LSAC calculated GPA is like 3.2. However, I exhibited an upward trajectory with my GPA. During my last, let's say four semesters at this school, I got a 3.9. Um, if you drop my first two years of school, 
my graduating GPA would be X. And that's just a way to really show the facts instead of pleading about, no, this doesn't represent me because everyone says that. So like the law schools are so skeptical. They call bullshit on that so fast because literally everyone with a 3.2 says it, but like I'm someone who talks to people with low LSATs and GPAs pretty often. Everyone has a reason why they have a low LSAT GPA. So you get pretty um, tone deaf or not tone deaf. That's not the word. Skeptical of people's claims, not because everyone's lying, but because everyone has reasons. And the best thing you can do is provide actual facts as to why the 3.2 doesn't represent you. And those facts would be, you know, upper trajectory or maybe a higher GPA in a major. Or if this was 20 years ago, mention that, like if you're a non-traditional applicant, stuff like that. Bad reason, I delivered pizzas on the weekends and couldn't study. Don't say that. If that's what you're going to write, just don't even write an addendum. It'll look worse than if you wrote nothing. And then LSAT addendums. Yeah, so LSAT addendums, once again, the bad, well, there's only one reason for an LSAT addendum, and that is a big score increase. You never write an LSAT addendum for a low score because they know you have the chance to retake the LSAT. So if you got a low score, why didn't you retake it? Why are you just complaining on this piece of paper instead of retaking the test? And that's what you look like when you write about an LSAT addendum. You look, you look like a complainer. If you're talking about, oh, I have a history of struggling with standardized tests. Um, okay, sure, that could be true. But like, they're going to be skeptical because the LSAT is very learnable. Um, it is relevant to law school in some ways. They know that people with lower LSATs tend to underperform. People with higher LSATs, I think it's more predictive at the lower ends. It's not as predictive on the high ends. Like someone with a 170 is not guaranteed to be a good law student, but someone with a 120 is guaranteed to be a terrible law student and is going to fail out their 1L year. So take that for what it is. So yeah, with that, um, how do you write it? Just say like, I took the LSAT, I scored a 145 since like I decided to take the LSAT more seriously and I prepped for X amount of time. Sent, I then retook the LSAT and got this jump. Um, this jump was due to, you know, better preparation. They know people study for the LSAT. You're not telling on yourself. Like no one really scores in the high scores without studying. So it's really not a big deal to um, have prepped. And with that, we shall move on to a bonus topic I had just because we got through that a little quicker than I thought we would, which is Mensa. Um, so maybe or maybe not you're familiar with Mensa, which is like this club of smart people, quote unquote. I think it's absurd. But if you have a 167 on the LSAT, you are officially qualified for Mensa. So I am officially qualified for Mensa. However, I find people that claim to be in Mensa to be pretty insufferable. So I will not be claiming a membership card. I just thought it's a fun fact. So like if you you know, end up do scoring above 167, you are officially a certified genius, which to me, knowing how attainable a 167 is, that really just says like, okay, Mensa is full of shit. Like that's not real. Um, yeah, it says, I think you have to score in the 98th percentile of an IQ test, but like, I don't know. If you're taking your validation from being part of a club of smart people, like I feel like the rest of your life, probably not going so high if we're having to like psychoanalyze. Not judging people. If you're part of Mensa and you find great joy in it, um, maybe that's true. I'm skeptical. To me, it seems like cope, but like whatever. I'm not here to judge, even though we just judged for the last like 90 seconds or so. Okay, a few more questions. Today is the uh, November 2023 LSAT score release date, which means I have a bunch of emails from people that took the test. Um, I'm not going through those, so I didn't ask them, but instead I'm hopping on Reddit to see what people are saying. And we will address some of these questions because people tend to get really bad advice on Reddit. It's, I guess I'll do a quick Reddit tangent. The uh, LSAT and Law School Admissions Reddit, they have some good resources, but they also have really bad resources. LSAT has this terrible um, 
or not else that reddit has this terrible democratic institution called upvotes downvotes which i mean we all like democracy but this is a great example of how democracy does not work because often these really bad ideas that are popular get upvoted of like oh no you got a 155 that's awesome you should totally apply to harvard with that because people are like trying to be encouraging and kind and whatnot but that's just objectively like bad advice and then you'll say something that's like objectively true for example, I think I said someone who's Vietnamese once was a URM, which means underrepresented minority. That's true. Like it's, they are way underrepresented in legal fields and law school. Like yes, South Asians in general are not underrepresented, but people were like, no, it's restricted to these groups, which like, okay, sure. Maybe at some schools, that's their policy, but there's no broad policy of URMs. It's a school by school basis. And considering that Vietnamese people are in general underrepresented at most schools, I would accept them to get a boost from that. All of that is now out the window. URM status or underrepresented, underrepresented minority is no longer a thing because of the Supreme Court case that was ruled in 2023. Who knows? Maybe by the time you're listening to this, that's been changed again. But as of now, schools are not technically supposed to consider race and applicants. So that wouldn't matter anymore. Although I used to um, catch like crazy downvotes and attacks for that, which was odd because like I'm not taking a stance on URM. I'm just saying, hey, they probably qualify based on their description of themselves. Another one was accommodations. I'll go into that on a future episode. Basically, accommodations give you more time on the LSAT, and LSAT grants them to everyone. I would always get downvoted for saying that, that if you apply, you get them, because I think people view that as like disparaging those with accommodations. It's not. It's just a description of the system. If you apply for them properly, you will get approved. It is that simple. I don't care whether or not you have accommodations. It does not affect me. However, if you apply, you get them, and people would get upset by that, which is odd. So Reddit, uh, you know, take what you see on there with a grain of salt. Generally, just ask why. Like, ask if the person can back up their argument. Often people are just spewing shit on there, and they're just applicants or LSAT takers who really don't know what they're talking about. But there is some good stuff on there. It's just so hard for the untrained eye to, like, separate that from the garbage. Okay. But let's do my fancy advice, my unsolicited advice for what it's worth for these people that have posted on Reddit. So this first one says 149 to 157. January or February, should I take again? Already now, I'm getting someplace. Still not thrilled with the 157. Trying to decide if it's better to test in January or February. December is going to be a busy month. Am I realistically going to be able to hunker down? But is February too late? I'll probably do January, just my options. Yeah, I would say January makes more sense because you might need February as a backup as well. Additionally, um, December is going to be a busy month. It makes me feel like this person is not taking the admissions process seriously. This is the most important thing in your future. If you are serious about going to law school in 2024, you do not get to take December off because it's like holidays. And if it's your job that's busy, you're leaving your job in like nine months anyways. So, you know, consider if sacrificing something for a temporary job is worth, you know, sacrificing your future potential. So that's what I would say. Um, but yeah, take January. Generally, I would say probably apply next cycle. It sounds like this person isn't ready to take January in which case they should be, you know, applying for 2025 instead. It sounds like this person is trying to squeeze in their applications for this year, but they may or may not be ready. Already. Next one. Got a 155. Feeling hopeful. First time taking the LSAT. I didn't study much. Did three practice tests to get a feel for it. Went through one of the LSAT books. Wanted to take the test just to see how it was and what the process was. That's dumb. Do not do that. Don't take the official LSAT. For one, it's 200 some dollars. Additionally, you waste an attempt. And you put a score on record when you haven't reached your potential. This person might be capable of a 170, but now they put a 155 on record because they were impatient. That's silly. Uh, also, their writing is terrible. They, they don't use, they don't have um, subjects of their sentences. It says, wasn't really thinking out a score well. 
with a 155 made me think that if I put in a bit more effort, I could score well for the next test I take. That you shouldn't need a 155 on record to get motivation. If you do, I question your emotional maturity. Are you really prepared to be a lawyer if you need a 155 on your LSAT record to go to law school? Like, I don't know. That, that makes me worry. It's weird feeling like I actually have a shot at law school in the future. This person actually sounds reasonable. If they got to a 155 without much prep, they're probably reasonably adept at these um at the LSAT. So yeah, they're really selling themselves short. I do worry about their mindset and how they're approaching this. But overall, this person should take the next six, seven months, like really study and get like a 175 and be an awesome candidate in 2025. Instead of like, what I worry this person will do is probably get like a 160 in January, apply, pay full price for some pretty mediocre law school, or they'll get 10,000 off. And that's just a shame. Alrighty, next. How to contact the LSAC fee waiver it held my score. Hi, I just called the LSAC and learned that my November score is being held by my fee waiver application. That's super weird. I've never heard of that. Do you guys know how to contact LSAC fee waiver, like email or something? I really need my score for the application, so I probably want to cancel it. I checked the LSAC website, but didn't find the contact info. Thanks. If you have a similar situation, I ask how long it takes to release the score after you deal with the fee waiver. Um, well, as far as the last question, they'll probably release your score as soon as you get done with the hold. I don't know the specifics on how to deal with this problem because it's a pretty unique one I haven't heard before. However, LSAC is very helpful on the phone if you call them up and just explain your situation. At the very least, they'll tell you the proper steps to take going forward to re resolve this. Uh, so I would call them. Even if you can't find the exact fee waiver department, just call LSAC in general. Whoever you get on the phone will be able to direct you to the proper person. And let's say you get the curmudgeon on the phone who doesn't want to help you. Just call again. They have multiple people working the phones. Odds are you'll get someone better. Already, um, someone got a 158 to 151, canceled my 151 score, trying to gracefully take this L and apply with the 158 and see where I end up. That's just, why are we applying with the 150? Like we've just talked about the student loans. I know all of you guys know how brutal it is to like apply below your potential because we just talked about it. But like this person, yeah, why did you retake the testing at a 151? Because the first time they got a 158, but now they got a 151. This makes me worried that they weren't listening to their practice test scores. Were you like not seeing where you were at? Were you taking practice tests? Did you know where your scores were? If you didn't, you shouldn't have taken the test. And if you did, they should have been above 151. That shouldn't have even been a possibility going into test day. So I worry this person went in um, unaware of the consequences. I have too much going on and too little focus for a January retake. I mean, grow up. Like, this is the most important thing in your future. I have too much going on and too little focus. Then you don't get to be a lawyer. Quit now. Like, you're not a serious person. This, this is just not a serious individual. Well, I don't mean to be harsh if this person's listening, but like, that's not what lawyers do. This is literally the most important thing in your future. Not having enough going on. Do you want $1,200 in interest a month, three years from now? Does that sound fun? Doesn't sound fun to me. It sounds terrible. Um, and this person, okay, in the end of their post, they say, if all else fails, next cycle and future LSAT, here I come. Good, future LSAT. That, that's what you should do. Next cycle. Don't apply this year. But don't even apply this year. If you apply this year, I worry that this person will get attached to a crappy offer and end up taking it, whereas they could have just put it off to the following year and, you know, been an awesome candidate, ended up applying, attending a school for free or a good school, whereas with the 158, they're probably going to end up paying pretty good tuition for a bad school, which sucks. So... Yeah, I feel like we're kind of coming to a theme here. Um, okay, cool, cool. Well, real quick, I have a personal statement that someone submitted to me. So we will blast through that as well. Um, for the person that submitted this, thank you. Generally, I am negative because that's you know what we tend to focus on. But it's not 
negative towards you. It's just that people really suck at writing personal statements. And yours is probably fine. I haven't looked at it yet. So this will be my raw and honest reactions. Um, but yeah, people tend to write on the wrong side. So this person starts by saying, I am an immigrant. Good. That's actually a pretty strong starting sentence. Um, generally, I sentences are good. You want to talk about what you did. I don't love that it's identity rather than what you've done. That feels like more of a diversity statement. Although nothing bad so far. I came to the United States in the summer of 2005 at the age of 13. Okay, um, sure. I don't love that we're talking about when you're 13. I want to be seeing you as a professional person in your personal statement, not a kid. But this could be, like, this feels like a diversity statement so far. My father died of alcoholism and drug addiction, and my mother did not have the means to care for me. Okay, so it's like, that's fine. Well, I mean, it's not fine. I'm sorry, like, that sucks. That's horrible. But once again, this is not really about what you've done. This is more about who you are. So this feels really a diversity statement to me so far. If this was a, were a diversity statement, I would have no critiques thus far. As a personal statement, feels off. Okay, due to the circumstances, I decided to leave Honduras and pursue the American dream as an unaccompanied minor. I adapted to a new culture, learned a new language, and navigated the educational system as an undocumented immigrant, comma splice, first generation student. Okay, so you want to be careful with that. Um, you want to have an and there. So I will put that in your personal statement for you. But basically, you know, all fine. And we actually have some good stuff there. I can imagine coming to the US when you're 13 from Honduras, not knowing English, or at least not well by the sounds of it. That's probably got to be a huge challenge. If you could talk about what you did to overcome these educational barriers, I mean, you've obviously succeeded because you're now in the position to apply to law school. I would talk about that and like how you've gotten to this point. So yeah, you have some good info there. If I was going to rewrite this personal statement, because so far I don't love this as a personal statement. This feels more diversity statement. I would talk about what you did to overcome it. In all likelihood, I would probably just shift this to a diversity statement and start over for your personal statement, but that's what I would do. Okay. So being undocumented came with several challenges that created insecurities. I suffered from imposter syndrome and was self-conscious about my identity because I was no longer a 13-year-old girl, but a wetback, ESL speaker, and an illegal immigrant that did not belong. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that's really harsh. Once again, that feels more diversity statement. It's not so much what you've done, but rather what happened to you, which I would put in a diversity statement. As an ESL student in high school, I was behind in my English classes. Therefore, I completed intercession and summer classes to graduate in time with my class. Oh yeah. Not exactly winning. Um, like I, I get it's, it's winning for your background, but you also have to think about who you're being compared to, which is all these kids that are probably for the most part, pretty good at school. So I probably wouldn't be mentioning how you had to do like summer school. I mean, in a diversity statement, it's fine. Just in your personal statement, I really want it to be all about winning. Diversity statements can be more about this background and how your experience has shaped you. But in a personal statement, we really want to keep it to how you won. Generally, you want to find something that you've succeeded at, a goal you set that you attained. I'll see if I can find one of the people I've worked with that has a really good personal statement, if I can share theirs on air. Um, but that'll be coming in the future week. Okay, so ESL student, while these obstacles were not easy to overcome, they were the fuel that ignited my passion to advocate for social justice, not only for myself, but for my community. I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of fine, I guess. Generally, we don't want to be talking about what's fueled you. We want to keep the focus really on you. So far from this first paragraph, what have we learned about our person? And I've learned that they came to the US as a kid um, from Honduras. They came from a tough background and they really struggled because you know they faced racism as well as having to overcome a language barrier, all of which is tough doesn't make them a great law school applicant. It's like, I feel bad for them, but they haven't really advocated for themselves yet at this point. This is a great diversity statement because it shows what this person brings to the class, like a unique perspective, which is why I like this more as a diversity statement. 
But as a personal statement, your personal statement is your chance to really tell them why I will be a kick-ass lawyer. Not why you should admit me, but why I'm going to come to your school. I'm going to crush it. I'm then going to go make partner at some firm and send you big checks or something like that. So, you know. All right, we'll continue. Upon college graduation, I challenged interpersonal notions of self-doubt and use my story to advocate and empower individuals in similar situations. Okay, show, don't tell. Don't say how we're challenging these notions of self-doubt or use your story. Actually, you know, show us. Don't tell us, hey, here's what I did. Show us how you like empowered people. Talk about the kid that you lifted up that like, you showed that this was possible to. Um, generally, when we're like just saying these conclusive things, like I challenge these interpersonal notions and I empowered individuals, it's so much more powerful just to show that rather than you know, give it to our reader as a conclusion. So I would rephrase that. I started my career as an immigration paralegal working with undocumented minors in December 2016. All right, I like this. In this role, I quickly learned how daunting and long an immigration case can be with all its complexities. I don't love that. I'd rather see that for an example. If you'd show someone you worked with, that'd be more powerful. Additionally, I discovered how important it is for vulnerable populations to have proper legal representation while navigating the layers of the immigration system. Okay, so I would cut like all that because it's about what you've learned, which like, I don't care about what you've learned. I care about what you've done, which this next sentence does get into, but I would cut a lot of that second paragraph. One specific client whom I will call Kelly was the first case assigned to me. Kelly was a 12-year-old girl from Guatemala who endured abuse and neglect from her parents. She suffered from severe anxiety and experienced difficulty trusting and communicating with our legal team. When I spoke to Kelly in Spanish, I noticed her demeanor would shift as she began to relax and share her account with me. I'm going, okay, this is good. We're talking about a specific case. Instead of forcing our conclusions about how we're affecting um, minors and you know helping the world, we're actually showing ourselves helping the world. So this is more powerful this far. I like this. Gradually, I worked with her in obtaining a declaration to support her case and assisted in, a fi in filing her asylum application with the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. And then they put UCSIS or USCIS. I would cut that acronym. You never use it again in your statement, I can see. So you, there's no need for an acronym. If you were going to continue using that acronym, yeah, you can throw it in there. But if you're not going to, you don't need it. So we complete her asylum application with the USCIS and immigration court motions with the Executive Office for Immigration Review. And once again, you have the um, abbreviation, which like, yeah, for legal documents, I, I get you. You're a paralegal. I'm sure this is like second blood to you or second nature. But we just don't need it because we don't use that term again. So it's not necessary. Okay, very good. We're, we're helping this girl, you know, get asylum, which awesome. Like that's a real case that we're showing. Throughout her case, I focus on Kelly's well-being in case by constantly providing her with mental health service resources, interpretation support in court, and explaining every detail along the way. Awesome. Love it. After almost three years, Kelly's case was granted and she became a legal permanent record. Resident. Okay, so we're missing a pronoun there. I would add in she. I corrected that in my speech, but you need a she there. She mentioned several times how grateful she was for all my support in her case and for explaining every step in a way that made sense to her. Helping Kelly attain lawful status in the country and navigating the challenges of the legal system helped me understand the critical significance of legal representation, which marginalized populations need. So this is a very common theme that many people do where they kind of start talking about how important the law is. I would steer away from that. I mean, it's fine to have a little bit, but this feels like it's going to get really long. Instead, I would go further in depth on Kelly. Like, what exactly did you have to do for her? If you could tell more of her story, that will fill up the space for all the stuff I'm cutting. Because I would cut much of this paragraph as well. Because you don't have to explain to the law school why the law is important. You're applying to law school. They know that you care about the law. You don't need to, like, justify that to them. Okay, continuing. 
Without proper legal assistance, it is impossible to obtain stability and without fear of deportation. Once again, we're preaching about how law is important, which I agree with, but it's not necessary. Witnessing the stages of her case not only taught me the complexities that our immigrant community undergoes navigating the legal system, but the importance of having a trauma-informed lens with clients who have suffered trauma. Okay, interesting. Now we're going in this trauma direction. Is that, I don't know, like maybe that's, but it's fine. Like, I don't see anything wrong with it. It just feels new. Um, so yeah, we continue. Kelly is just one of the hundreds of children that I've helped get lawful status between 2016 and 2023. Awesome. We've shown that you're a legit paralegal. You've been doing this for seven years. Like, I have no doubt that you know what you're getting yourself into um, for law school. Like, you know what your day will look like five years from now when you're a lawyer, which is always good to see. So I would, you know, keep that. Though I would change one of the hundreds. If you can get a precise number, which I understand might be difficult, but if you could, it's more powerful. Because 100 is just like, oh, did this person just make that up? But if you say 216, that's precise. I like that. Working with undocumented minors had introduced me to the different challenges of navigating the intricacies of the legal system. Once again, talking about what you learned, don't care so much what you learned, care more about what you did. Without the proper legal guidance and resources, vulnerable communities face challenges that put their risk, future, and well-being at risk. I plan to continue advocating for disenfranchised folks to ensure their voices are heard. Which, okay, this is all fine as a um, conclusion. I would wrap it up, though. I'd keep this shorter. I believe that as a law student, never say the words I believe or I plan, just so just, just cut that whole clause because um, the person continues. My experience as an immigrant and advocate will add depth and substance to my cohort and enrich peer engagement while preparing me to be the lawyer immigrant children need to thrive in society. So that's a long sense. I'd cut it down, but yeah, it's fine. My experiences and training place me in a unique position to help others, which I hate the word unique. You probably don't want that in your statement. And also your prior sense have that same idea. And I know that blank school, blank clinic front, concentration will prepare me to be a lawyer that makes a difference in society and bring social justice to those more vulnerable. Yeah, you can cut those like last two sentences. You, you were fine. Like it looks good. You don't need to like have this whole uh, meandering about like how you're going to do good and all that stuff. It's fine. We believe you. You don't have to like plead to the school. So what have we established? Well, pretty good. I mean, for a first draft, like for the person that sent this, this is actually looking really good. It's well written. You guys can't see it, but for the most part, there weren't many grammatical or like language mistakes I had to fix, um, which like for what it's worth, this is much better than most of the first English drafts I get from people that grew up speaking English. And I understand you've been speaking English for, um, what is it, 18 years now? So like, you're pretty good, but like, it, it's better than most of the like English majors I work with. So good job to this person on their writing. As far as like the direction I would tweak this in, well, the big thing is I would cut down on kind of the preaching, of, not preaching, but talking about the law and how it's so important and instead pivot to what you've done. Go deeper on Kelly's story. What process did you have to go? Like, did you do home visits? How did you get to know her? It's just so much more powerful. Um, like, did you ever have a call in the middle of the night that you had to go address? I don't really know what that would look like because, you know, it's your story. You know this girl better than I do, but something along those lines would be awesome. Already, Well, that is the agenda for today. Um, hopefully you can find this wherever you find podcasts. Well, have to figure that out, you know, and just that's my next project for the day after I wrap this up. But yeah, this was fun. I'm gonna keep doing this. I want to say weekly. Uh, it might be monthly depending on the logistics of it. But I always need material. If you have anything you want me to expand on, I'm always happy to defend anything I've said in further format. I think really explaining your thoughts is the best way to get to the truth. 
I've also changed my mind on things over time in terms of LSAT and law school admissions, because, you know, if you're not, you're just not a serious person that's evaluating the world. If all your positions are the same as they were three years ago, you're probably not thinking very critically about the world. Um, so I'm always open to hearing feedback on various things, whether it's positive or negative or questions. Um, otherwise, thank you for hanging out with me for an hour. This is fun. This was a lot easier than I thought it would be just to talk for an hour. I am also having some guests on in December. I have a few people that are 1L that offered to come on. So I'm going to be asking them about their experience. They're, uh, just give a quick preview. I know one of them's at Gonzaga. One of them's at Syracuse. She's doing the online program, which is super cool. So I'm very excited to talk to her about that and hear about what's different with that and how it's been for her. And then I have someone coming and she's at Florida State on full ride. She crushed it. She's like one of the most awesome people I've ever had. And I'll say, I mean, all, all three of these people are people I really like, which is why I reached out to them. So like, if you're hearing this and you're not her, like, I, I like you too. You you three are all cool, but I'm super excited for that. Um, And yeah, you can reach me at Ben at lsasimplify.com. Find me at lsasimplify on Instagram, or just go to my website, lsasimplify.com. 